Great Sugar Booger, ladies and gentlemen, season four of Chewing the Gristle. We've got some magnificent guests queued up and ready to roll. Of course, Chewing the Gristle, it's guitar-oriented, but we talk about whatever. Can you dig it? And this glorious broadcast, if you will, is brought to us by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing you such a variety of glorious instruments, it'll tempt your mind, body, and soul. And our friends at Fishman Transducers, beautiful Andover, Massachusetts, providing all kinds of -of state-of-the-art accoutrement to take your acoustic instrument and fire it up to blast people's brains into submission. And of course, their pickups especially those with the Gristletone moniker, are fantastic. Let's get to it, folks. This week on Chewing the Gristle, we got my buddy Carl Burnett. Doggone it, he's a funky individual. You've heard him play with Branford Marcellus. He's playing in a gajillion sessions. He was in town playing on The Temptation Show, which is a review that's being toured internationally, I believe, at this particular juncture in time. But nationally was my concern because he was here in Milwaukee. We got together and hung out. And then later on, we got together to chew the damn gristle. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, Carl Burnett. Well, once again, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. Gregory Koch here in the warm bosom of the Orange Room for another edition of Chewing the Gristle. And we have an old pal of mine today, an exceptional guitarist, Carl Burnett. You've heard him with everything from... Bradford Marcellus. He's produced Larry Carlton, for God's sake. You've seen him in Robin Ford's band, Doggone It. He's got multitudinous True Fire videos, his own solo records. And I just saw him in town as he's on the road with uh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, this Temptations review, which is fabulous. And uh, so good to see you again, Carl. How the hell are you? What's happening, brother? It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, where are you right now? Where Are you currently still touring? Well, I'm just down the road from you in uh, Chicago right now, and uh, we're just finishing up the second week here at the Cadillac Theater. Excellent. And you're still having fun? Still going good. I had to ask you if you got to do that, uh, uh, the fun Wawa stuff, and Papa was a Rolling Stone. Arguably one of the greatest Wah performances on record, at least on a pop record. You know, it, and it is, and, and also the fact that it has a trumpet solo as well yes and, <laughs> true and uh and that papa was a rolling stone you know on the original recording it's it's wawa watson doing that thing and it's just playing that every night is uh you know is really special for me because you know, i mean you probably know i have a one of my true fire videos i did the wild course and and that was actually one of the examples <laughs> You know, so if anyone out there, you know, wants to wants to check that out, that that would be a place to do it. So it's funny that I'm actually playing it now and and going back and listening to the original recording, like so many of those songs from that era or just in general, you know, you think you learned it. But then when you go back and really get inside of it, then you catch all those other little juiciness of the thing where you then you learn that. You know, it's not really a part. They're just playing the way that they play. Right, 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 right. You know, so that's been cool, you know, just to kind of get in the feeling of it um, a- as if, you know, you're just playing it in the moment, not thinking, oh, well, I'm playing the same bars over, you know, the, like a pattern, you know? Right, right. Yeah. The thing I find interesting about, you know, like listening to, 
you know, obviously, you know, listen to like Cream or Clapton playing a wah and like Tales sure. of Arabia Ulysses and and White Room and stuff like that, and, and certainly Hendrix, you know, uh, and then Wawa Watson on that performance as well. It's just they seem to have so much more control over the sweep of the wah, and I think a lot. Of, I mean, to me, as I as I try to figure. You know, of course, the endless quest of trying to figure this stuff out, as as I'm sure you're more than well familiar with, is that it. I think the relationship, just as just what kind of amplifiers they were using back then, and and mm-hmm. and and how much they were turned up, as opposed to playing on a cleaner amp and then using like pedal gain or something with the wad, doesn't quite get the same relationship. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hmm. And as a result, it's uh, you know it's it's trying to get that 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 happy balance of figuring out how to get. That's why I don't know what you've been using lately, but I I found this um, uh, jam pedals from Greece makes this thing called the 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 Waco, okay. and and it's got a little potentiometer on the side where you can go between all these different various eras of of wah. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I you know on my main pedal board that I that I gig with when I'm doing my own thing, I have uh, a wah that that Dave Friedman did his thing on back in the day when you know when he was when you could still like, access him in that way, you know. Right, right, right. And but uh, but traveling, I'm using using a, a, a Buddha wah. Okay, yeah, I remember those absolutely. And uh, and uh, and sometime when I was out traveling, I, I stopped by Jeff Bober's shop there in Baltimore. And uh, he kind of kicked the gain up on it a little bit for me, and and that's what I'm using, you know, out out here. And it's and I'm you know I'm enjoying that a lot. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I remember years back, I don't know how many years ago now, but I I met a gentleman out in the D.C. area, uh, Mike McConaughey, and uh, and it was kind of a weird thing because he he reached out. I think he came to a clinic I did around the D.C. area, and and he had he had a couple of these Stevie Ray Vaughan DVDs that I had done in the early two thousands, you know, Hal Leonard made me an offer. I couldn't understand. <laughs> and I, and I ended up doing these Stevie Ray Vaughan instructional DVDs with a full band and whatnot. And he came out and, um, and he was like, listen, uh, you know, those meant a lot. Cause he was, was serving in Iraq. And it's like me and my buddies would watch those videos. And I would just like to say, thank you. But I, I've, I've made my, my was and I'm really OC, you know, he's like really obsessive about finding the right pots and all that kind of stuff. So he made a wah called the uh the Makano wah. And that was my main wah for the longest time, man. I he had the secret sauce. And I don't and I, I don't remember why I think I, I gave one away. I don't think I gave one away or it might have stopped working and he was gonna send me another one and uh anyway so but it just never ends as <laughs> the gear quest and then i got one from the from the jam people and it's it, it's just, just so nice to have just a little bit more control of the sweep you know what i mean because it depends if you get one that's just kind of preset it might not be preset to where that area is that you really are more comfortable with uh, so, you, that. so you mean you can change the range with exactly a, yeah yeah yeah. Uh, yeah 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 that's a cool that's a cool feature absolutely yeah good clean fun can you dig it? You know, I was just thinking about the first time I met you is you, we were doing a Fender thing and you were doing a trio with our buddy, uh, Reggie Hamilton on bass and Kurt, uh, Biscara on drums. Oh, yeah, right. I remember it very well. And that, now were you living out in LA then or have you always been a New York guy? Oh, no. Yeah. No, I was already living in New York. I've been in New York since about 2000. Um, so yeah, quite a, quite a while, but yeah, I knew Reggie from back in the day, you know, we've been, been buddies for a long time. Yeah. Oh, but so yeah. where, where did you guys first meet? 
You know, we've talked about that, and and neither of us can totally recall. <laughs> it's like one of those things. Uh, we need a bass player for our gig, and and I don't know who recommended Reggie. He doesn't remember, but just from that first get together, you know, it, you know, we've been friends since, and uh, and uh, as as you know, you've played work with him a lot. I mean, just all around super guy, and 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 you know, whatever he brings to the table musically, you couldn't ask for more. Right, exactly. Re Reggie is one of those guys, I'm, I'm sure you had the same experience. It's like, as soon as you play, the first time you play with him, you realize that you're part of the Unimind. It's like, right. you're... <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, yeah, so that, yeah, it's always great to play with him. And 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 that was a lot, that was a fun time there, Fender. And I remember you jamming with us. And I think Niels Lofren was there that was, was did his thing that, that day too in that room. Yes, indeed. We, yeah, yeah. That was good times. Good times indeed. So have you always been a talisman for the most part? Gosh. Um, since I bought a telly. <laughs> 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 no, so so yeah. So to answer your question, no, that would be a no, because I was playing strats for a long time. I mean, you know, there's that period in the you know late '80s where you know you had the strat with the preamp and all the thing, and it was all tricked out, and you had the Floyd on it. Um, so I went through that, and uh, I had a, uh, a Tom Anderson back then, you know, like so many guys in LA, and um, it just slowly, man, and I. I don't know, man. I was at this pawn shop in Texas. <laughs> Eugene's, Eugene's Guitars pawn shop slash music store. And that Telecaster that if anyone sees me online with that pink telly, I got that at his shop and that just became my thing, man. I don't know. It's like, what? It's like why didn't I have that all along? <laughs> well, tell, tellies are an interesting beast. You know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, there, you, you know, you, some people, you know, like to say, oh, well, you know, it's um, kind of like if it's a badge of honor of some sort, but I just like it because it's just such a, it's like the perfect blank canvas. There's three sounds. They're all great. And you, <laughs> and, and, and you can use them for whatever, you know, you can throw them around and they, they stay in tune. You don't have to be careful with it. And, uh, and it, there it is in a nutshell. So every genre sounds great. You put a little gas on it and it's, it's a great rock guitar. It's a great funk guitar, obviously a great country guitar. You can jazz on it the whole nine yards. I know, man. And you're putting that right, you know, right where you're speaking because that's what your signature model is, is you know, paying homage to. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> well, what's funny is, you know, what's kind of funny is like kind of what you mentioned you know, that you came across this telly. I mean, for me, it was kind of the same thing. I mean, I, I always wanted a Strat because of, because of Hendrix and because of, uh, you know, uh, Derek and the Dominoes Clapton and Mark Knopfler and, you know, on and on and on. I wanted a Strat and I, re I really wanted the sound of a neck pickup on a Fender guitar is what I really <laughs> wanted. Yeah. And, um, and my guitar teacher at the time when I was very young, I mean, I had, you know, a Fender Lead One, which was my first Fender guitar, which had that little humbucker in back, and that was it. Yep. Um, but he was selling like a 68 Telecaster, and between some money I had saved and, you know, I made it some kind of a, a clandestine deal with my dad to, you know, pay him back in some way, shape, or form. I bought that guitar for like 450 bucks, 
Wow. And, and that was my main guitar for years and years. And, um, and it was just one of those things where I just made it work so much so that when I finally got my hands on a Strat, I actually liked the ergonomics and sound of the telly better, obviously, because I was used to it. But, you know, the neck pickup on a telly just sounds a little squishier and does this thing at Strat's, Strat's a little harder. And, of course, the bridge pickup on a Telecaster is a just, a, you know, a wonder to behold. And unless you have the Strat set up right, you know, the neck, the bridge pickup is kind of wimpying, you know, all that kind of right. shit. So. It's- pretty thin some guys make it work though absolutely it can't be done no doubt about it yeah wow yeah so do you still have that guitar this no i didn't i what's funny is is um well it was kind of back in the day i'm you know when i was uh i don't know if it was the same way for you but there was like you either went through you were a single coil guy or you were a humbucker guy you know what i mean and and once your ears kind of switched to the one to the other it was hard to go back so i played the telly for for years well, back then, you know, two years seemed like 10 because, <laughs> you know, when you're a teenager in your formative years. But I went to this uh, this this guitar camp um, and I had my telly and uh, the teacher there was really cool. He ended up being my teacher in college as well. But instead of being kind of a, you know, a jazz Puritan, you know, he was like, man, I really like this blues and kind of country thing you're going for. And you're adding some jazz. And if you wanted to add a little bit more jazz, you should check out these guys. And that's the first time I heard. Robin Ford and Larry Carlton. He played me yeah, some yeah. of their records, you know. And there was another kid who was in the the camp there who had a three thirty five, mm-hmm. and so he always wanted to play a tally. And now I've got the wonder of the three thirty five on my mind. So I started playing the three thirty five a little bit, and I saved up my money uh, for the three thirty five for the rest of the summer. And I ended up buying a uh, it was like a nineteen eighty three would have it would have been brand new uh, blonde dot neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, and then once I, my ears got attuned to that, I used to love to play the telly, like when it, when it was just by myself. But if I was at a gig, I couldn't switch between them and be comfortable. So in my mind, I had switched to being a humbuckersman. So I ended up selling that guitar mm-hmm. to, uh, 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 this guy I knew from high school who then routed it out for humbuckers. And I oh, just, God. I was, I was just mortified. <laughs> But, so it was kind of a, lo- a roundabout way of saying no, I don't have that guitar anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, you know the 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 neck date on my Telecaster is sixty eight. Oh, okay, cool. Is is it uh, is it a blonde one? Uh, oh, no, yeah, it's the red one. What? You're, you're, the, that, the, the pink telly you have? That's a sixty eight. Mm-hmm. Well, the neck is the body is. I don't remember what, but the neck is definitely has a has a date on it. Yeah. You know, it's fine. I don't know if you find the same thing, but you know, you, you play these modern instruments with the modern radius yeah. and, and, and a taller fret and it's definitely preferable for, for bending and, and all kinds of different things, but there's something about going home to that old school radius and smaller frets that does a certain thing. I do you agree with that. Different way. Well, I have to say with my guitar, when I got it, the, it was so brutally beat up that I had to have the whole thing refret. So then I got it a little, you know, <laughs> Right. <laughs> Brought it up to the modern age at that time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't play on that, on that, what is it, the seven and a half or whatever that is. That, that doesn't work for me. It's weird because, you know, it, um, there's certain vibratos and stuff that I find I'm really at home in that, in that environment. Oh, wow. Okay. And because I grew up playing that, so I, I kind of revert, you know what I mean? I just, mm-hmm. I, I just kind of turn my... 
uh, skull around to being able yeah, to adapt to it. Comfortable on that, yeah, because you know when I the first strat that I had, I mean that was back when you know when Charvel was new and everything was really flat, right? You know, so I, then I went from that and then to the Anderson, which was you know, so now yeah, I never had one of those guitars with a very very you know round radius, so maybe that has something to do with it too. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you about the 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 Brantford Marcellus years. I remember a few years back, I don't know when it was, I was coming back from a road trip and I just had like, uh, I think I was in a rental car and I had satellite radio. And this song came on the radio and I was like, what is this tune? Why why have I, I just couldn't place it. And it, 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 I had to figure out what it was. And it was one of those uh, Buckshot LaFunk songs. Wow. It was the cow it was the cow funk song. Oh funk, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that song is epic. Well <laughs> how fun was that to play live? Did you you guys just Man, you you can find some videos of, of me playing that on YouTube. And I think on the recording, I think it's Kevin Eubanks that's playing. And and what I will say about cow funk, Greg, is that before that experience. I really wasn't even trying to mess around with a slide whatsoever. And I think the sample on there is, if I remember correctly, is Sunhouse. Okay. It's like a thing. Um, I can't remember which song that is, though, but it's definitely Sunhouse. So with with that, you know, it 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 forced me to 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 start messing with the slide. <laughs> And that became a big part of the show when we were touring, you know, and when I say a part of it, it's like everybody would leave the stage and then it was just myself sometimes and and the drummer and the bass player and an extended slide thing. And they're like, it would go on and on and on. I was like, okay, how many more ways could I try to play something that I really don't know what the hell I'm doing? (laughs) (laughs) You know, but... Uh, so how many years ago was, was that? What, when was oh that whole God. project? That was in the that was in the mid nineties. Okay, you know, and some folks thinks that it's that it's still fresh, but no, the first tour was in ninety five, and then the second one was like ninety seven. You know, and we kept kept flowing all through there, and and the touring band recorded the second record. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that was really special. That was a special time, man. You know, there was a, there was the, you, do you know Rocky Bryant, the drummer? I don't. Okay. Well, he was a drummer in the band. So we had a thing where, you know, we would have sound check. And if we had some extra time, the two of us would just kind of jam and mess around with stuff. You know, nothing very specific, but I guess sometime we, you know, we had a, a specific groove that we were kind of, gravitate towards and just have kind of have fun with just the two of us. Right. So when we went to do the sec, when we were at the session to record that second album, Branford goes, uh, Hey man, I want to record that thing. I'm like, we were like, what thing? And he said, you know, that thing you guys doing the sound check. We're like, okay. Uh, when do you want to do that? <laughs> he was like, and, he, and he's very sure now. and it's like what the hell you know but that was the thing with with him is that he allowed everybody in that group to 
to to express themselves. And he gave you that freedom to do that, you know, without micromanaging anybody. So it was like, hey, we're in it right now. And you guys are going to record that, the soundcheck jam. And I'm like, okay. Awesome. <laughs> okay, well, maybe we need a bridge. <laughs> and and that's how that went. So yeah, it's a song on there. It, it's called uh, uh, "My Way." Yeah, okay, I'll check my that way. out. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're here. So, yeah, so the slide guitar is in there and some other kind of crunchy stuff. And the thing that's funny is that that, that Lawrence Fishburne is on there too during a, doing a narration. Ah, okay. yeah. <laughs> where originally he was trying to get Sonny Rollins to come in and. Uh, no, I mean, we're not saying not Sonny Rollins. Yeah, uh, Henry Rollins, you know, the, okay. the, to come in and do a thing. But uh, he wasn't available. So, yeah, so then Lawrence Fishburne came in. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. how'd, you end up with, how'd you end up with that gig? I mean, how, what was kind of the uh, the impetus for that happening? Gosh, you know, it, uh, it came about from this, this another sax player, Everett Harp. And, and... Uh, Everett's friends with Branford. And even though I hadn't really played with Everett, he just kind of knew me, you know, just around from the scene in L.A. And they had started off with uh, this guitarist, Ray Fuller, was playing with them the first few days that they did. And for whatever reason, Ray couldn't couldn't continue. I think maybe at that time he was playing with Whitney Houston or something, you know, just a little gig like that. Right. So, so he wasn't available. And... Uh, I just got a call and 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 I hadn't rehearsed with the band or or or, or anything or they'd already been playing, and I showed up at the sound check of our first gig, which was in Zurich. Oh, jeez! You know, and I didn't know anybody, and I, and and it was kind of like, what am I doing? I'm here, and my first conversation with Branford went like this: We're at the sound check, you know, running through some songs. Greg and everybody listening, he comes over to me and goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I thought, and, go, and then I'm like, I'm totally puzzled. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I've listened to the record, i listened to the live show, and in my mind, I'm playing, I think, what I'm supposed to be playing. And then comes the hammer, bro. He goes, he said, I've heard all that shit before. That's the shit that's on the record. Just do whatever it is that you do. And then he walks away. Oh, Jesus. And I thought, boy, I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is how it went down, brother. And then we played the whole show, everything. And, and from my recollection, he never even looked in my direction when we were on the bandstand after that. And I thought, okay, I guess I'm heading home. <laughs> and then, and uh, then we played the thing. And then later, there was like an after party kind of a function thing. And I'm just standing around. I don't know anybody. I'm like, okay, what the heck? And then, and then yes, then Branford's walking in my direction. And as he passes by me, he glances over and he goes, okay, you're the cat, motherfucker. And then he keeps walking. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my introduction to, to Branford and Buckshot LaFunk. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that's so, 
So no one else in the band said anything to you? Like you get done no, with the gig? No, I mean, I didn't know anybody. I mean, <laughs> I was new. Well, all's well that ends well, I reckon. Yeah, you know, but that's what it was. It was just, you know, you just jump in there and, <laughs> and be yourself. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty awesome, though. I mean, you know, it's, it seems that, you know, too often now people want things to be exactly on the record and they want you just to replicate what's been because that's what the, they think the audience anticipates, you know what I mean? Especially sure. if it's any, any kind of a legacy ensemble of some sort. Uh, but that was a situation where there's like, nope, it's like, you need to create something new every night. That's that, pretty awesome. That's, and that's exactly what it is. And now... You know, in, in this situation of doing the musical theater, it's the exact opposite of that. Right. You know, and, 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 and from my, you know, just my creative experience, that, that's what makes it challenging for me. And then, you know, speaking back to our, our buddy Reggie Hamilton, you know, when he knew when I was doing this thing and he's had some experience doing theater work, too, he said, well, now that you're doing this, make it the challenge to play it exactly the same every time. And, ah, then that's what, and then you're going to get your head in a different space that that's what your challenge is to do that. So that helped me a lot. <laughs> ah, interesting. You know, because it's not that easy. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely <laughs> to, not. To lock it in and say, okay, I'm going to do it exactly the same every time. Right. So yeah, so it, that's been that's been a challenge for me. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Well, let, let's just kind of walk back a little bit, if you don't mind, and kind of describe how you got started. Are, are, are you, you're not from California originally, so describe. Right, you're from. Are you from the New York area? I'm originally from Washington D.C. Oh, okay, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you're, you're asking about like my path from there to where I'm at. You know, my, uh, gosh, I was at Michigan State for a year after I, after I finished high school. And and while I was there, I, I was not, you know, I was planning a, a certain college path. But the but that first year of college, I was like, you know, I, I kind of was starting to gravitate more towards, um, uh, you know, my, my original thought was that I wanted to be a, re a recording engineer. So um, at that time, there weren't too many programs available, but, you know, at Berkeley had a new program, uh, uh, music and production program back then. So I thought, wow, well, maybe I can get in at Berkeley. Okay, well, I do play guitar some, so maybe I can get in. <laughs> you know, but my, my, my thought was really to, was going into, you know, recording and production, and I used guitar as a means to get into school there. Um, and, and as those years went by, it just so happened, you know, that people liked, you know, what I was doing on the guitar, but that wasn't really my mindset. I'm going to, no, not at all. Wild. <laughs> and even when I moved to Los Angeles, it was the same thing. You know, when I, once I got out there, um, you know, I was going around, I mean, I was, a, I, I was an engineer at, at, at Solar Recording Studio, um, you know, uh, back then, you know, so I was doing the assistant engineer paths and, and like that. And then it just kind of gotten to a, to a thing where I kind of was getting more 
you know, more opportunities for playing guitar than being in the studio doing that side of things, you know? Wild. I had no idea. So what were your first kind of influences or uh, preferences for stuff you like to listen to and play guitar-wise? Oh, I tell you, great. I mean, if we go back to, like, the, the beginning, beginning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For me, Al McKay is the template. Aha! You know? Uh, and then the, if you check out, everybody would check out the uh, Herbie Hancock VSOP and that's got Wawa Watson and Ray Parker playing on oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yep. The live album. Like, that's kind of where I was at during during that time period. And um, and that was also, you know, when Fusion was, you know, was, was big. Right. You know, uh, and, you know, Romantic Warrior came out. And then, you know, listening to, you know, what Al Demiola was doing. And, and, um, and I was also... A, and still am a big Jeff Beck fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I have, you know, Blow by Blow and Wired, those two albums, are constant playing, you know, getting through that. And um, and that's kind of what, those are the two, I guess, the things that were in those, you know, those formative years, you know. And uh, I've always been a big funk fan, so, I mean, you know, anything that was in the 70s in funk, and that's why I'm on Instagram, I'm funk e mofo because the E is for, you know, funk. Like, what are you going to jam on? Funk in E. <laughs> that's where that comes from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, so that's, that's, you know, my foundation, you know, it, it, it's really in 70s funk. You know, that, you know, just, you know, that's kind of where, that's my... That's my starting point, you know. Oh, you know, Ohio players. Anything, anything that was happening in the seventies, <laughs> right? Guitar wise, you know, cool in the gang. And I mean, the cool in the gang from that time period, not like in the later eighties when it sure. turned into, you know, started to shift towards ladies' night and all the other. Right, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool in the gang, the funk horn band version of cool in the gang. Right, you know. Um, there's, there's, there's anyone that wants to, you know, dig into, you know, that style of guitar playing, that's that's where my reference point, you know, goes back to, you know. I can dig it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about how you got affiliated with Larry Carlton and, and you played with Robin for a while as well. I mean, how, that was just as a result of being in L.A. and doing various different things. And Yeah, yeah, well... Well, like I mentioned, you know, so in my, I'm, I'm still, you know, I still do a lot of production work. So with that, um, you know, I still keep up with, you know, writing and producing and stuff. So during that, uh, that time that, that led to, you know, doing the, the stuff with, on Larry's record, um, I was working with uh, Boney James. He's a sax, a smooth jazz sax artist, and we have been friends for a long time. So we... I was doing a lot of work with him and his producer, Paul Brown, was also producing Larry's record. So that's kind of how that came about. So he said, man, I'm working on this Larry Carlton and do you have some tracks? And that's really how it went down. So I'd like to say that I was actually at the session when Larry recorded his stuff because I would have really have loved to have done that. Right. And, and been there. Um, 
but yeah, there there's two two songs on the album called uh, Gosh, what is that album? Uh, Deep into it. So that so deep into it's the title track, and that's one of my tunes. And then the single from that album was a song called Morning Magic. So those so those were those two songs. So then some years later, after I was in New York, I went to one of Larry's shows at the at the uh, um, at the Blue Note, and and then I hadn't met him before that. And then I went up, so I told him who I was, and then he was. He was like, oh, wow, I had no idea. I said, yeah, because you... <laughs> so, so for him, he was just playing over some tracks. So, I mean, he didn't know who did it. And then um, and then once I met him, you know, at uh, in person, then I did another uh, remix for him on one of his other songs. It was on, um, gosh, it was a blues thing. It was on, I think the album was called Sapphire Blue. Oh, okay. I remember that one. Yeah, and then um, and then I did a remix on one of those things, and you know, and kind of tricked it out a little bit for for his radio single on that. So yeah, that was cool. And the the interesting shift there is you know playing with with Travis some now. That's you know getting to right. know him and playing some shows. So that's kind of been you know a lot of fun too. So that's how that came about. Um, and la- and and the Robin thing, you know, I guess maybe like many of us, when that first Yellow Jackets record came out, I mean, I'd never even heard, had not heard Robin Ford before then. And and that freaking just blew me away. It's right. like, what the heck? Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm. you know what I'm talking about. And I'm sure many guys that are listening, everyone knows that that first Yellow Jackets album is just so awesome. And uh, so, and and I had been to, you know, see Robin perform a few times in L.A. and uh, over the years. And interestingly enough, one of my cousins was Robin's neighbor in New York (laughs) when I was living in L.A. So sometimes she was like, you know, my neighbor plays guitar and I think he's playing some shows around. I'm like, well, who's your neighbor? So, so Robin's got a got a big kick out of that. That you know that my cousin Judith Burnett was his neighbor once we <laughs> once we got to know each other. But uh, yeah, I had some two uh, a couple of buddies that were playing in his band back then. Uh, Darren Johnson, the keyboard keyboard player, and Gary Novak was playing okay, drums yeah. in the band. So. I guess just in conversation, you know, Robin was telling those guys that he thought maybe he wanted to pick up, you know, try something different and have another guitar player play with him on on his gig. And the rest is history. And that's and that's how it came about. So it was just one of those things. He called me. I think, what? I'm like, okay, cool. What's going on? <laughs> and then we had we had, I went uh, you know and 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 jammed with him and and John Molo was playing. Are you hip to? He's a drummer. He was play, back then. He was playing with Huey Lewis. Oh, okay. No, no, not okay. Huey Lewis. Uh, Bruce Hornsby. Okay. Yeah. So he was he was there, and uh, uh, Jimmy Earl was on bass, and then we just kind of jammed on some tunes, and you know he was and. And I wasn't really sure how I was going to fit in with that. 
But then after that rehearsal, he, he, he gave me one tip. And this was it. And I'm going to share it with everybody here. He goes, listen to Little Walter's greatest hits from the beginning to the end. And then you're going to know everything that, that you're going to need to know. I'm like, <laughs> and it's not familiar with Little Walter. That's a harp record. Right, exactly. And, and when I listened to that, then I totally, it, it shifted my thinking about playing the one, four, five blues. Because all that stuff is one, four, five. There's no jazz turnarounds. There's no extra right. trickery in there, as you might say. Yes. But it's those lines within, those, within the one, four, five that make so many different variations in the different feels between the, two, between the, between the songs um, that gave me a new perspective on just doing that. Um, so that was what it was. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. So we did that, and we went and we played some dates at at, uh, at, at uh, Yoshi's up there in in, uh, in the Bay Area. Um, just playing, you know. His brother came and played harp on the, on with us, and and he was really killing. Uh, uh, and uh, and that's how that went. So we did that. And then after we finished that group of shows, then we did uh, uh, some more dates after afterwards where we did, you know, some of his other stuff, you know, like some of the instrumental things. And, right. and, uh, and that's when his album Supernatural came out. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, we're yeah. Also playing, playing a bunch of songs from there, too. And, and that was one of his jokes that, you know, one of his lines during, at the show that time because that's when Santana's Supernatural came out. <laughs> and then he would make reference to that, and he, you know, like, but his album's doing a little bit better. <laughs> you know, because that really puts Santana back on the right mega status, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Wild. Yeah, man. So that's probably what, late 90s that happened? That or? was, that was like maybe like 99, because that was just before I moved to New York, you know. And, uh, you know, if anybody out there, like, you know, like, like the jam, the thing you played with us at, at, uh, at Fender, that, that first record I did, Life Before Midi, that really came about from working with Robin because we were just kind of hanging and talking. And, he, and, you know, and he said, yeah, you know, it shouldn't really be that hard to record an album. You know, just get a few people together that you like and throw some ideas around and record it. Right. <laughs> like, like, and there it is. And then there it is. Yeah, and that's, that's that true, though. I mean, it's it, like I think of all the the things I've done over the years, and I swear to God, the 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 off the cuff thing where I'm like, yeah, let's just do a blues and a are like the things, you know, and then you record it like as an afterthought, and that's the, oh, I like that blues song, or you know, hey, let's let's do this, you know, it's always just the off the cuff thing where you're not trying to squeeze the hell out of it, where you're just kind of like letting it flow. That always seems to resonate with people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just don't, don't put too much thought into it. And then you just go for it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So you got into a bunch of different soundtrack stuff, uh, over the years and how, you know, various different, you know, um, you know, yeah, soundtracky type of things. I mean, how did you get, get into that? And 
describe that experience as far as that's concerned. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, the, the thing that, um, that some folks may not know that it's me that that's kind of out there now, you know, if anyone is, has out there as fans of, of a show called Teen Titans Go or any, or if they have any kids that are, that, 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 that watch a lot of Cartoon Network, they all you have to do is ask them if they know about Teen Titans Go and chances are they're going to say, yeah. And then you're going to ask them if they know about something called the night begins to shine. And, uh, and that's kind of what's been kind of in the forefront of things on television over the last four or five years um, of some work that I did that, that went through there, which, you know, actually have become a DC character as my, I am myself. So I'm animated into the show and uh, and the, and the songs that are that the cartoon band B B E R that's for my name Burnett and the and, and my two partners Frank and Nia and uh, Billy Regan so they 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 created this group called B E R and we're on Teen Titans Go and 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 there's a lot of epicness and adventures of us uh, as as a band that's come uh, that had a hit in the '80s. That when we play in the in the in the modern world now, we're able to transform into the '80s version of of uh, you know like uh, heavy metal. Type <laughs> it, it transforms the whole cartoon once we start playing our music. Awesome. <laughs> but uh, but the path that took me in, into doing the the the, the television uh, work. You know, it's just like one of those things, you know, Greg and, and everybody, where you're you're creating and you're putting your work out there. And um, one of and sometimes people will ask me, how do you get into writing for television? And my and I always have to say, I don't know, <laughs> because, um, you know, because you're you're. Your your work is all you're always moving and 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 um, one thing goes to the next thing to the next thing so these stepping stones and in this case it it goes back to to Buckshot LaFunk in 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 the at the root of it because one of our uh, touring sound engineers once we came off the road he started working on the show Cox. And he was the post-production engineer for Cops. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm noticing that we're using a lot of the same underscore all the time because he's editing the shows. And he says, man, I know you produce, you know, you produce music and stuff. Why don't you put a demo together for me so I can play it for the producers of the show? So maybe you can do some music for Cops. I'm like, "Okay, I'll do it. So I did it. And then that went nowhere. You say, man, they just want to stick with the library that they've been using. And, but then I had this demo of, you know, 60-second uh, examples of whatever it happened to be. And then I thought, wow, who else do I know that's in television? And I'm thinking, well, I do have a buddy whose wife works at the Oxygen Network. I'll just drop it off at his house. That's still when you had CDs. Sure, <laughs> you know, exactly. Right. Around, which I did. And then I didn't think anything else about it. 
And then I moved to New York and, uh, and maybe within the ne next year, I get a call from uh, the music supervisor at a TV show called Extra, which is an entertainment magazine that, you know, maybe some folks are familiar with. And then the, the guy calls me and the person I'm talking to, his name is Roger Fountain. He goes, he says, you know, I heard your demo and I want to know if you want to write for my show. <laughs> what? Who are you? And why did you get my? How did you get my demo? Right. Gave, so that that friend that I gave my CD to got a job working at Extra. And then he said he overheard a conversation in the office that they want to hire some composers for the show. And then he's like, "Hey, I have some friends that that are musicians that write music. Maybe you want to check out their stuff." And that was it. And that was it. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. And then from that, then that just, you know, that led to the next thing. And then, and then also when, once I moved to New York, one of my buddies from, that I went to college with, um, was, was doing a lot of, uh, he was doing a lot of documentary film work and he had a music library and then I started doing work with him. So, you know, I've told, I've done some college clinics where I've told folks that, you know, those relationships that you start at that time, you know, that that's everybody's moving along and that's such an important important aspect of 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 the work is the relationships with the people that you come into contact with right um you know without any specific agenda i mean i didn't know that when joel goodman was my roommate back in berkeley all those decades ago that we were fast forward and I'm in New York and he goes, Hey man, you know, I'm doing this project. Maybe you want to write some songs for my, whatever it was at that time, you know? Right. And then that, and then that work led into uh, a pretty big contract that lasted for a while, man. So it was um, the, our, our, the main shows that I was doing were uh, Pawn Stars, American Restoration, then they had a couple of spinoff shows, Cajun Pawn Stars and some oh, yeah. other things. And, uh, and that was kind of like a lot of, a lot of kind of roots, kind of rock stuff, which was easy to kind of just put together, you know, um, without having to do a whole lot of production. Uh, it was just, you know, pretty, mostly guitar-driven stuff. Right. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the path in, in, into, the, into, the, into the music uh, you know, into the TV, into the TV work world. Now, in, it just, you know, in, in, in from a, um, for our listeners who may not know, are, are a lot of these situations work for hire or are they royalty bearing or certainly there's publishing aspects of it that are your material that they use? Um, it kind of fluctuates from, from job to job, I would imagine. Sure. Yeah. In, in the TV, in the TV world, I mean, from, from my experience with it, they, it's still, it's work for hire. And, and what you end up with is, uh, 
you know, they're in control of all your masters. So that means you can't use that music that you write for your own purposes after you turn it in. So the what you do end up with afterwards is your songwriting royalties. And then that's all paid through, you know, wh- whether you're with BMI or ASCAP. So those, you know, that's, you know, so you'll get some, well, you should at least get some money right. to produce the music. Right. Which sometimes sadly, you know, doesn't really reflect the amount of work that you put into, into, into doing it. Cause you know, you have a lot of folks now that, that are doing things for, for free and you putting those things on the internet and making them available to folks. And, and, and there was a time before my time of doing the TV work where folks that were composing for television were really making a killing. Right. Sure. And then that made it, then it was a big shift because then the companies began to realize that they were paying for music that they could, that they could own and make money from the music that they were using. But that aspect of it wasn't, wasn't always, they weren't aware of <laughs> right earlier on, but now everybody's very aware you know, of how much, you know, how lucrative it is. And especially nowadays with the number, with the, with the oversaturation of, of programming that there is, you know, it's just a sea out there now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. I remember a buddy of mine, um, you know, that was his main source, which still is. I mean, his main source of income was music library stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, it, 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 sometimes these business arrangements are so needlessly complex you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you don't, and you don't realize that. Yeah, well, there, well, there's sync fees, and you know, there's an initial downstroke, and then there's sync fees that come, and then there's writers half and publishers half, and all that yeah. other kind of stuff. And they purposely make it, you know, so the average musician is just like, I just want to get paid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, sign right here, son. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that. You know, but you know, it's it's a good lane to be in if you have. Um, if you're connected directly with a company who's producing the shows, then you're in a good lane. Right. You know? Um, and, uh, but if you're just kind of putting it out there in, into the sea of, Oh, I'm hoping somebody's going to find my music, but that I, I, I imagine that would be a, a very tough way to go. Right. Well, it's, you know, to what you said earlier, it's all about, you know, well, and that's really the case with, really any profession it's about who you know i mean certainly you've got to be good enough right and, and in some you know in situations where you know you can be exceptional and so on and so forth but none of those things even matter if you don't know the people and haven't built up these relationships because you know nine times out of ten people are going to go with someone they know uh, as a as opposed to just a shot in the dark absolutely <laughs> and, and, and. And the more that you can, more that you can also, especially nowadays, is to get out and meet people face to face and have a conversation with them and see them one on one, just like we did when when I when I was up in your neck of the woods. Yeah, it's so important because just those things of of communicating via social media, it's 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 good up to a certain point, but I mean. And then another way, it's a little bit unnatural. True. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it, it, and along those same lines, 
you know, we're getting out and gigging for the first time, you know, since COVID. And, and I've yeah. just been doing a ton of live streaming from the house here and, and, you know, was lucky enough to have some people help me out to get the production value of when we do a band live stream, you know, it yeah. sounds good. It looks good. Multi-cameras, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but people will come and see the band and they're like, well, we really enjoyed the stuff online, but man, live, it's, it's so much better, you know? And you're like, well, yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and by the same token, I, you know, I'm sure there are examples of people who present themselves online as one thing, but then live, they can't do it. You know what I mean? Uh, and there's just, oh, no, gosh. there's just no substitute for getting in front of people and, and doing the thing. Wow. Okay. I won't go down my YouTube rabbit hole on that one, but yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Because being able to play for a few minutes on a YouTube video and sound impressive has nothing to do with playing with other folks. Right. That's where I'll leave that. Right. (laughs) Well, you know, and 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 there's that whole thing of, you know, that, that symbiosis of playing with other people and, and the unwritten rules that you just realize after years of, you know, you have to have your ears open. Okay, certain he's playing that. I'm going to play this or, you know, and just, you know, the rules, all that kind of stuff is stuff that's learned from just years and years of on the job training, as it were. Right. And, and for someone to just be able to as you said, present something that looks all shiny and polished online. It's not the same thing. Not that there's, I mean, again, at the end of the, I hate to use that phrase at the end of the day, because everyone says it, but you know, if it's bringing joy to people, all well and good and so on and so forth, but there is a different skill set entirely of being able to get together in a room full, full of individuals and put something together that is musical and is symbiotic. And then that is entertaining and then able to take that, as a functioning unit from town to town without killing each other. Right. <laughs> well, you know, the thing that, 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 that I think would, which, which anyone needs to take off their hat to you, Greg, is that you, you cover all of those bases, man. You know, you, you deliver the goods on your, on your, on your social media. And it was like, okay, well, can this guy really do it when he's out there on the gig? And, then, <laughs> and of course it's like, Oh yeah, okay, yeah, no, yeah, he does, and <laughs> and he's entertaining. You know, we talked about that when we saw you. It's like, man, is that your band too? Has everybody else deal with that at your house? It's like, <laughs> it is what it is. By <laughs> like, they're right up to speed with you. I was I was in Boston recently, and I, and I went by Berkeley, and I met one of the guitar. Um, uh, teachers up there, Tomo. Fuji. Oh yeah, Tomo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you know, so he's got a pretty good online presence there on his Instagram and everything. Um, and and I sat down with him in his office and I asked him exactly that question about how the students are in terms of what they're able to, you know, do when they're playing with other folks. And he said which I wasn't too surprised to hear, but made me feel a bit sad because when we were back in my time, when we were at Berkeley, a huge part of the experience there was booking what they called the ensemble rooms. 
And those were the rooms that you that were classrooms during the day. And then the evening, you could, the students, you know, those rooms were available for the students to go in and with whomever they wanted to get together. And you could have your jams throughout the evening. And in order to get an ensemble room, that meant you had to get up very, very early because there would be a queue ah. to sign up to get your name on the list. So it became like, well, who's going to get up tomorrow and go and book the room so we can jam tomorrow night? And we're like, oh, okay, it's your, your turn. Or whatever <laughs> it was, you know? But that was a huge part of it was the playing with other people. And when I asked him how that aspect was in the modern Berkeley, he goes, people know how to play with tracks and they know how to play by themselves. And so that's kind of where they're, because everybody's sitting in front of their friggin' screens. Right, 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 right. So he said, you know, that he really pushes for the people, you know, to, to play with each other and, and things, you know, um, because, you know, that's what I mean, that social media aspect and it's taking that still seems to push people away from or, or you need to remember that you still need to right. make that with physical people. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. And when he said they can play with tracks and they can play by themselves. Wow. Yeah, well, you know, it's that's not, you know that's the, a, it was a general thing, but he said it's definitely something that you see. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, yeah. Well, and there's a, you know, there's less opportunity too for um, for playing in in venues and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. I, you know, I think that's a that's a big part of it as well. I mean, but you know, it's. You know, if I look back at, you know, when, when I first started, you know, I got done with college and started playing at clubs. I mean, the guys that were, you know, 10, 15 years older than myself were looking at me going, you're crazy, kid. It's over with. You know, it's oh, like, you, you know what I mean? It's like you, you can't make money at clubs anymore and da da And, of course, I just looked at these guys like, yeah, fuck you. You know, you're lame and I'm not. And I'm going to and I'm going to and I'm going to do this thing. You know what I mean? Which is whatever. Of course, whatever young kid thinks, you know. So, you you know, you make your way one way or the other to try to figure out how to do it. But, you know, it's just such a fascinating thing. Um, When you look at when you get to be, you know, our age at this point and uh, and you look back just how unbelievably lucky we are to have had the careers that we have of being able to continue to make music and make a living at it and make a, and make a good living at it. And, um, and so many people along the way, I'm sure it was the same for you too. It's like, well, what's he doing? Oh, he got out of it a long time ago, or she got out of, you know, they decided to do this or yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Uh, and then just all the people over the years looking at you like, well, when are you going to grow up? You know what I mean? When are you going to, you know, what are you doing to, you know, your poor wife, you know, what, what are you doing? You know? Yeah. And, and then you realize, well, no, you've, it, you, you also, you've made a decent living. You've done this, that, and the next thing. And, you know, and, and, and just because you're not on the cover of a guitar magazine or, you know, you're um, not in some kind of real tangible uh, high profile thing that everyone sees that that's their idea of success. Whereas to me, it's like, 
No, I've been able to make a music. I've been able to maintain a middle class existence. Keep my keep my you know vehicles and you know in some semblance of condition. Kids in school, clothed, fed, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Being a musician, that to me is successful. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, but at, you know, looking at kids now at the same, I mean, there's other pathways to get there. It's going to be a little bit different, but. You know, it's like, what? Did, what's that old quote of Frank Zappa when they said, um, someone asked him, you know, what is your advice to musicians coming up? He's like, two things. Uh, don't stop and never give up. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Because, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I'm sure you can relate. I mean, it's like, I always say, you got to be a little nuts in order to do it because you're so obsessed with it. And you're so convinced that what you're doing is exactly what you should be doing that you are not a, immune to the negativity and weird shit that happens, but you don't let it stop you. It's like you 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 usurp it every time and just go, okay, well, that didn't happen. Now what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, because you know it because you are you know a, a musician. It's not just that's not just what you're doing right right exactly stop being it because that's what you are right right (laughs) exactly you know and 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 hopefully if you if you have that kind of passion you're able to 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 use it in a way that can sustain you but it's the same in any profession that somebody may happen to be in right you know one of my childhood friends is a plastic surgeon and you go, ooh, that's great. But he's and he lives in Miami. Oh, that's but I've I've hung out with him and he friggin' struggles, bro. Right. You know, so <laughs> right. You know, but he loves it. You know, so that's what I mean. You know, he you know, he's not a superstar plastic surgeon in Miami, but he's there, he's working, he's got his family, and they're cool, you know. Right. And, but he has a passion for that. That's his thing. His, you know. Yeah, if you get to do what you love to do and you can make a living out of it, then right. that's that's the thing. You know, so we're, we're playing some music and we're hanging in there and we're still here. We're still here, my God. <laughs> you know, I want to say, tell you again, and, and uh if, I guess most of you guys, everyone listening, knows that that Greg is up there in in uh, in Milwaukee. So I was there visiting, and and he sent me out on a guitar. I can't say that I coined the phrase guitar safari. I think I saw that on one of Joe Bonamassa's. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> so I went out on the on the guitar safari with with my buddy. Uh, uh, Leo, who's playing playing bass with us, and he sent us over to this shop, uh, Distinctive Guitars. Yes. So when I was at Distinctive Guitars, I, I played this really cool guitar there called the Lockhorn. And and the builder for the Lockhorn just so happens that 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 that, that they're there that they're here in in Chicago. So I've actually now, as you would say, I've been to the lair. Uh, yes, excellent. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, thanks for getting me in trouble with that. My pleasure. (laughs) But then we also went to one of my favorite little diners, the North Avenue Grill. Yeah, that was great. Yes. Delicious feast. 
pancakes were ex- exceptional. Yes, you got to eat. That's the bottom line. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, brother. Well, listen, my friend, thanks so much for taking some time and chatting with me today. I'm sure the listeners will enjoy it. It was very insightful on many levels and uh, always great to hang with you. Same. <laughs> and uh, travel safe, and hopefully I will see you soon. All right. Thanks, Greg. And Thank uh, you, Carl. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. All right. Thanks my, for having me. You got it. Peace. Thanks so much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. We absolutely appreciate you caring and checking out these podcasts. We certainly have a good time doing them. Again, it's brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado. Don't be afraid to go to wildwoodguitars.com. Check out what they have going on. I actually go there every night and visit their new arrivals page. It's kind of a kind of an illness, really. And of course, our friends at Fishman Transducers, fishman.com, making all the greatest accoutrements for your stringed instruments. Stay tuned for more. Greg Koch here. Thanks so much for tuning in.